welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's A Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC Podcasts. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Lisa Bass, who is doing a PhD in psychology under the supervision of Dr. Anita Tush. Welcome to Grad Chat, Lisa. Thank you, Colette. I'm excited to be here. That is good. I'm glad you're excited because we're going to have a great session this morning. Before we get into your research, I understand you did your bachelor's degree at the Free University of Brussels in Belgium. What was that degree in? Uh, And why is it called Free University? (laughs) Don't ask me. That's a difficult question to begin with. Yes, I'm originally from Germany, though, but I moved to um, Belgium to study psychology. And after three years studying psychology in Dutch, which was a challenge because I just um, got to know Dutch when I started there. So in the very beginning, I did not know what the professors were saying in the lectures, but I made it. So um, well done. Thank you. And after that, I decided I would like to study in German some more. And then I moved to Switzerland, which is a beautiful country. And everyone who thinks about going there is a great place to be. I've visited both countries and you're right, they're gorgeous and and including Germany. I I love, that was the nice thing about Europe. It's so easy to get around, Mm -hmm. isn't it, into different countries. But good for you for not only moving to a a couple of different countries, but also having to think about the language and everything as well. But then you decided to move to Canada. I did, (laughs) yeah. You know, then you had to sort of learn English as well. Or did you already know that before? Yes, we do learn English in high school. So that wasn't a huge problem. Even though obviously once you get here to Canada, you realize what you don't know yet or how hard (laughs) it is actually to converse in English. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, Canadians are very friendly, so... um, well, I must admit, I mean, I speak English, but mine's australian fied, <laughs> and the Canadians had trouble with me. So, And I have, and to be honest, I'm still learning some of the Canadianisms, which yeah. I, I sort of take a, a step back sometimes and go, what? <laughs> what is that? Yeah, especially English. slang is hard to pick up. It um, is. Slang is hard to pick up. And of course, having to then change it from a, a different language altogether could be twice as hard. So, but why come to Queen's to do your PhD? Why not somewhere else? So I didn't really decide to go to Queen's. It was more really uh, related to my supervisor's research. Right, right. So my prior supervisor back in Switzerland, she sent me um, some emails with suggestions where to apply to. And one of them was my current supervisor, Anita Tusche. And I looked up at her website and she asked some really interesting questions, which I'm excited to tell you more about um, today. And I decided, okay, this is the kind of research I want to do. And actually, I told my parents before that I would really like to stay in Europe and be close to you because I am a family person. (laughs) But then, yeah, this... You went across the pond. Yeah, these great (laughs) research questions showed up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I think that's where people sometimes 
don't quite understand graduate research is that it's not necessarily a, a particular university, although I'm really pleased that you chose Queen's. A lot of it is in relation to where can I do the research that I want mm -hmm. to do and with who. And that was that's a classic example. And it was lovely that, you know, your supervisor in Switzerland was aware of the work that Dr. Tush did to be able to put that forward to you. So how have you found your time here? What uh, I, I didn't ask you, what year are you in as, as your PhD? So I'm basically, I graduated two weeks ago. Ah, congratulations. Thank you. So, um, that. That's <laughs> awesome. so you are done. Yeah. <laughs> done, done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, it's been four years here. Obviously, the pandemic was in between for about two years, which right. was uh, sad. I mean, it was difficult for everyone. Yes. Um, so I was back in Germany for a while. Oh, well, that was good. To be close to home, to family. Exactly. And Kingston is small, so most people left. Um, right. Not much to do here during that period. Oh, so four years has probably gone quickly for you. It did, yeah. And I was actually hoping to um, yeah, stay here for four entire years because I did some moving mm -hmm. beforehand, right? So, um, yeah, that didn't work out. But <laughs> still, the last two years were really nice. and Great. That's a shame that you weren't here for four years, but at least you got the two years in, which was great, and got a bit of a feel for Kingston and Queens. Absolutely. And now I'm also sad to leave. <laughs> I so. Know. so I guess I should, at the end of the day, I'll ask, uh, you know, what's next for you mm -hmm. after now that you defended before i talk about your research i'm going to ask you one more thing because i don't know if people know but in psychology there's four different streams that you can do research streams and um, and even in the clinical psychology they still do a research project as part of that but the other two are cognitive neuroscience, developmental psychology and social personality psychology where does your work fit so I'm in the Cognitive Neuroscience program. And why is that? Simply because it fits my um, professor's research the best. Right. Um, it's the only uh, area that um, does a lot of neuroscience, and we do a lot of neuroscience in my lab as well. Uh, okay, got it, got it. All right, so let's, let's get on with your research topic. And so your research topic, which probably explains a little bit more why you've chosen the, the Cognitive Neuroscience stream, is exploring the malleability of social preferences, how, when and why people make altruistic decisions. So first of all, can you give me a bit of an overview of what you try to do within that topic title? Okay, so maybe um, I'll start with uh, what exactly altruism is before Brilliant. I dive yes, into any it's, background. It's one of those words sometimes that you have to have a second guess about, am I on the right track here? <laughs> exactly. So obviously altruism is defined by um, various researchers in various different ways. But the way we define altruism is as a motivational state to promote someone else's welfare, even at a risk or cost to oneself. And especially the latter is important because um, if you help someone and you try to gain, for example, a better social status uh, doing that, this is not altruism for us. So it really needs to be at a cost to oneself. And that's also why we oftentimes like to um, research how people behave towards strangers because we know that they only met these people once. Uh, so most of the time they don't um, get any benefit from it. See, that's interesting, because I think if I helped a stranger, I would come at the end of the day, I did my good deed for the day. So does that fit in there? Yeah, <laughs> obviously some people don't believe that altruism exists. Ah, okay. 
that's for sure a big topic. What you're describing is called the warm glow effect, so that you feel uh, better after helping. Right. And that definitely is a part, but might, yeah, as I said, p some people believe that pure altruism exists, other people don't. Don't. So I don't think this is the best uh, talk show to argue <laughs> about that right now because we probably won't find a solution for this. But uh, yeah. So how have you been? So give me a bit more about what you're trying to do in, in your research. Yes. I mean, because that was the definition. But how did you go from that title that you had into what you had, you researched over the past four years? Yeah. So first of all, obviously, we know that a society benefits from altruistic individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even um, with big topics like climate change, uh, we need to all, um, you know, um, uh, uh, cooperate together uh, to reach our goals or like refugee, refugee, refugee crisis like, uh, that have been going on in the past couple of years are also something where we all need to pitch in as a society. Uh, but even though um, altruism has been researched since a long time, we still don't have very effective long-term interventions. We do have some, but not really uh, where we can completely change someone's what we call social preferences, which is um, basically something like altruis uh, altruism or even fairness considerations. And why we don't have these long-term interventions is basically because of two things. So first of all, um, there are obviously individual differences in our altruistic tendencies. And the interventions that we have are not completely tailored to each individual. They might fit very well for some individuals, but for others they won't. Can I interrupt there? What do you mm -hmm. mean by interventions? Interventions could, for example, be um, very simple mindfulness exercises. Okay. So basically just training people to think in a different way or yeah, to basically practicing being more mindful towards others. Right. Okay. That they would not be mindful towards, you know, by themselves. By themselves. Mm. Okay. Because it's very easy in today's society to switch off of what's going on around us. Exactly, and We're we also making us more observant of mm -hmm. what is going on. And we also know that we are sometimes also really good at it. In social psychology, we differentiate between in groups and out groups. So in groups is, for example, your immediate family, um, your close friends, or also if you're part um, of like a soccer league or a, a right, something so like some that. Sort of team or something. Yeah. Exactly. So. And once you're part of an in-group, for you it's usually very easy to feel compassion or amp towards that in-group, which oftentimes right. leads to um, increased altruistic helping behavior. Right. But without groups, it's different. So as soon as someone is, for example, on the opposing team, yeah, even within sports, yes. you can very easily start to, hate is a strong word, but you know. Um, yes, that's the enemy. Exactly. <laughs> Win mm. at all costs. <laughs> yeah, so some of these um, trainings try to manipulate people in being more compassionate and helping towards their outgroup members as well. So like I mentioned the f refugees earlier, this would also be an outgroup. You know, there are people mm -hmm. from a different culture than us. Currently, I'm here in Canada, and yes. I would belong to the out group because I'm a minority as a German. Right. And we just behave differently towards people who are not um, in our immediate in-group. So this is something I think um, society can benefit from in general, that we try to be uh, more open to different perspectives. Um. Right, right. So it's teaching us to be more aware and things, mm -hmm. which is, is very, very, and even more important <laughs> today. So... 
how, how are you looking at that, though? Because, I mean, I loved your analogy of the sport because that cleared things up a lot for me, which was great. But there's probably a bigger scale and, and some way in, in your research that you'd want to be able to sort of measure what's working and what's not working. Is that what you're looking at? Of How can you change people's minds to think differently? Um, yes. Before answering your question, I just want to follow up on to your prior question yes. why interventions work or don't yes. work so there's also a second factor um, that um, influences that which is context so we for example make decisions of whether to help someone or not in very different contexts right and sometimes it's easier for us to do uh, for example let's say someone in front of us is crying then it might be easier to help than if someone um, smiles at us and asks for help right right so we also know that these interventions are usually focused on very specific contexts, but um, the world is complicated. So that is also a reason for why interventions um, sometimes fail. Right, right. That makes that makes sense too, because I know you're right. If someone's crying, you want you want to find out: you know, Are you okay? Not everyone does, but well, yes, true, true. That's true. And then the people who are just smiling, think, oh, they're having a good day. When underneath, they may not be having a good day. They're just putting a smile on their face. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I get that. Yeah, and in my research, I try to take research from various fields: neuroscience, um, psychology, and also behavioral economics to answer these questions of. Okay how altruism works in general, because we still don't really know what the underlying mechanisms are that make us behave a certain way. And also looking um, at these complicated behaviors from various perspectives increases our chances to actually understand it and know maybe, I do um, obviously basic research, but we are hoping to inspire with our research um, interventions. So something like this, First of all, how do you start analysing that? Do you have a whole group of people that come in or you're looking at past things that happen? And then how do you computate all that? You know, what's mm -hmm. working and what's not working? So maybe I'll start with how exactly we measure altruism. That would be great. So we use um, tools from behavioural economics to measure altruism, which is simply exchange games uh, from game theory. Okay. And we usually, you know, invite people to the lab. Um, we also sometimes do online research. But when we invite people to the lab, they come. We have computerized tasks already programmed for okay, them. Great. So it's standardized um, for every participant. Right. They come in. We place them in front of the computer. They read through instructions. And then they start playing these games. And we use one in particular, uh, which is called the dictator game. And this game is basically like they will be presented with an offer, a monetary offer. And this monetary offer will um, influence their own payoff and the payoff of other people. Right, right. And then they make uh, a decision between this offer, for example, $10 for yourself and $5 for the, for the other person right. versus a default of $10 for um, both of you. So one option would be, for example, fair, and the other option would not be fair. There would difference in payoff, which right. either benefits you or the other individual. And we play usually lots of trials, about 300, for example, which is needed to um, use more sophisticated computational models. Right. We would probably already know their altruistic preference after, you know, like a couple of trials. But um, since we basically feed a computer algorithm with it, we need um, this abundance of trials. How do you choose your subjects? Because they have 
may may or may not have different life experiences already. Absolutely. So um, in psychology, it's very popular to use uh, the SONA system, which mostly consists out of undergraduate students who okay. um, take Psych 100. I chose not to um, use the student <laughs> population only. They're not necessarily naive. Yeah, it's it's just different, you know. Yeah. So I really try to um, have a representative sample um, of the population. So we also put some flyers out, you know, in restaurants here in Kingston. Right, community people. Come we in. also got some community people come in. So that age range was um, until forty-five, from eighteen okay. until forty-five. And other gen demographics of the your subjects? Yes, we usually try to have female and male students. Obviously, non-binary people are welcome as well. But we try to have um, almost an equal amount of female and males. Can I ask one more question? Mm -hmm. Where, was there a difference between, you know, whether they were immigrants to, um, to Kingston or whether they were born and bred here? Yeah, so usually we try to recruit um, people who are fluent English speakers. Right. So we did have a couple of people who were immigrated, I guess. We always uh, ask for their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. But this is usually not something, especially if we only have a few, that we can really research. Right. So you would need more people to really do cross-cultural research. Yeah, because I wonder sometimes, those that have come from another country, particularly if they've had to leave mm -hmm. their country, with that wasn't an option wasn't a preference for them but they yes. had no choice i wonder if their altruistic tendencies would be different because of their mm -hmm. own experiences of either wanting to help other people because someone has helped them yeah you know the give back thing as opposed to someone who has never experienced anything being displaced um, absolutely may have a totally mm -hmm. different idea yeah i think that's for sure true but this is not just even immigrants. This is also just Canadians born and raised mm -hmm. in Canada. That's true. You know, some That's might true. have had adverse life events early Good on point. and others uh, didn't. Yeah. So this basically, yeah, comes back to this issue of inter-individual differences in altruism, mm -hmm. which makes it really hard. So I, I guess you've actually mentioned. answered that mm -hmm. next question is, you know, of how much do people differ in their altruistic tendencies? <laughs> yes. So people differ a lot in altruistic tendencies. And we also know that these uh, individual differences are relatively stable within individuals. Okay. So it's very hard to change and they won't change, you know, like next week. Right. This will be relatively stable from an early age even. So there are also some um, development, developmental studies where you can already see and predict based on measures like their um, social cognition skills, for example, empathy or perspective taking right. that already predicts in in elementary school how their um, pro-social preferences or altruistic tendency will be once they reach adulthood. That's a bit sad that we can't change people's perspective, isn't it? I mean, we can, but there are also studies, as I mentioned uh, prior to this, uh, these mindfulness trainings, for example. Mm -hmm. They do change, for example, tendencies um, up to six months and even on a neural level. So okay. also brain activity changes can be observed. Oh, really? Yes, oh. which is interesting and fascinating. Yeah, it would be. Is that when you've got all the le little electrodes on someone's head? And um, <laughs> yeah, they're different the, measures. The, the the colors changing on the brain scan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We usually um, use functional magnetic tomography, um, fMRI. Right. And yeah, we basically put participants in the scanner, scan their brain, also oftentimes while they are doing things. 
So, so even with those games that you're playing, they would be connected? Absolutely. So they would basically see a screen and then have some buttons to press and then they could accept or reject um, decisions. Wow. Uh, of us, yeah. That would have been fun, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should have put my hand up. <laughs> so what processes are involved in an altruistic decision? Yes. So obviously there are various theories. But we know there's one famous theory. It's called the empathy altruism hypothesis. Okay. It's um, from Daniel Batson. And he believes that, first of all, we obviously perceive another person. And to make an altruistic decision, we will need to perceive that other person as a need. Okay. But we will also simultaneously value the other's welfare. Yeah, so if we think someone is in need, but we don't care about them, such as, you know, the soccer player from the opposing team, if that person is hurt, we will be like, well, good for him, he's out. Um, But if it's it's a team player, we obviously value their welfare and, yeah, we perceive them in need. That might elicit empathetic concern for some people. Right. And once it does, it also elicits an altruistic motivation. And then there will be a cost-benefit analysis of possible behavior. So you will, for example, ask yourself, okay, um, what's the cost of me helping now? Uh, What's the benefit for the other person? And once you have evaluated that for yourself, and then you basically decide whether to help or not to help or um, simply not act at all and just um, don't do anything. Yeah. You're going to get me thinking about this all in a very different way (laughs) after speaking with you. I love that. So what about, I mean, your area falls within cognitive neuroscience. So what is the contribution of neuroscience or computational approaches to the study of human altruism? Yeah, okay, let's start with neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we observe, so basically how, let's say just social psychologists who don't do neuroscience, they observe behaviors, behavioral outcomes. Just by the sight. Just by the sight or how they record the decisions in computerized tasks, but they will know the outcome. They will know if someone decided to help or not help. Right. Based on the outcome. It's based on the outcome very much. And neuroscience basically can give us a glimpse on also the motivation to help, for example. Yeah, sometimes let's say you're going to fall off your chair now. Well, I could, for example, help because I'm like, okay, well, I want to like keep going with this. <laughs> or I could help. And you just let me fall. Exactly. Or you can call out to me. <laughs> or I could simply help because, you know, I see you are in need and right. um, I don't want you to die. Right. Yeah. So there are different motivations for right. the same kind of behavior. Right. And that is really hard to decipher if you're just focused on the behavior itself. Right. So neuroscience can give you glimpses in the processes that um, lead up to the decision to help, but also uh, while you are making um, this decision, how the value is computed, for example. So can I, maybe I'm being a bit naive mm-hmm. here, can I ask you, when you're talking about be able to see what it is, are you saying on the neuroscience you can look at what's happening in the brain, which bits are being triggered Yes. So you, for, for, before you make that decision, as opposed to your decision was you either helped me or you didn't help me. But this is saying it could be a battle inside my brain, should I or shouldn't I? Absolutely. Yeah, and we also know, you know, that specific brain regions are connected with with, um, specific um, types of behaviours or, you know, even motivations. That is known. So 
we know, for example, if one of these brain regions uh, lights up, that this is motivation X, and if another brain region would light up, we would say, okay, this is motivation Y. This right. is obviously very simplistic depicted now, but uh, yeah, but that's that, basically... But that makes total sense, though. So with that, how can we increase pro-social or altruistic behaviour in individuals and society at large? And, and, and I guess what are the challenges hindering this increase? Yes, your first question, we probably don't really have an answer yet. Okay. We are still uh, doing a lot of basic research just to understand these processes better. And uh, could you repeat your second question and again? And the second one was, uh, what are the challenges hindering the increase? Because clearly you just said that you, it's very difficult yeah. to increase. So what are those challenges? Yeah, as I mentioned before, these inter-individual differences and these um, contextual changes that are ubiquitous, but we basically don't have these interventions tailored to that yet. But I guess... In general, it's really like that we don't understand altruism yet. Even right. though, you know, there's an abundance of literature, but we still don't know. And uh, for example, what we did in our research now, we looked more closely at, for example, earlier, you know, introduced how perception, valuing the other's welfare, mm -hmm. is essential for making an altruistic decision. Right. And from a behavioral perspective, that is researched and we know, okay, if someone perceives someone as a need, we donate, for example. You could have seen that, you know, during the recent refugee crisis when Ukrainians had to flee, I guess $59 million were actually donated by Canadians in the first 15 days, right. which is a massive amount. Yes. But the need was highlighted in that um, instance, right? So people saw that and valued um, the and Ukrainians' welfare. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that, you know, valuing the other's welfare, perceiving the other as a need, this will increase altruistic behavior. But what we, for example, don't know is what kind of brain regions these perceptions of other people elicit. So this right. is something we set out to do. We uh, basically um, built a new task where we assess perception of others need and also how deserving we perceived others to be. Mm -hmm. So we simply looked, um, put people in the scanner, they looked at various images and we asked them, do you perceive this person uh, on this image as deserving of help and do you perceive this uh, person in, uh, on this image as, um, need, as in need of help? Okay. And they basically made these judgments of right. deservingness and need. And then we were interested in, okay, what kind of brain systems brain networks are um, elicited and we suspected for example the perspective taking network to be elicited right um, based on prior research we expected that and this was also the case and we were also that was good, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. yeah we were happy about that yeah, nothing worse than you go I'm completely opposite <laughs> yeah that does happen in research as well but <laughs> So um, we did that, and one of the questions was also like, how do these inferences, we make these judgments of deservingness and need, how do they actually differ uh, in the brain? Are there even differences? Can I ask a very, mm -hmm. well, I think it's a simple or obvious question. How much in this decision-making is based on how you've been brought up? Obviously, yeah. So the environment yeah. around and... That's a good question, yeah. So in almost... 
every question in psychology you answer with um, it's nature and nurture. Right, yes. So we know that, that some people are born uh, with, you know, a set of um, brain regions who are built a specific way. But at the same time, obviously, your upbringing changes a lot. And I mean, we talked about these mindfulness trainings, right? Yes, like yes. if you as a parent make sure to foster compassion and empathetic responses in your children, uh, they will very more likely also be more pro-social in the end or more altruistic. Right. And we also, for example, know that reading novels can um, increase your perspective-taking behavior. Okay. So there are definitely certain things you can do. It, it, it's, in, it's interesting because I remember when I was growing up and I went to university and there was people at my university who had never travelled before mm -hmm. outside of Australia. And, I, and they would make comments from time to time and I'm thinking, oh my God, you guys are so naive. Go out, And I used, I used to say to them, go out and see the world and see for instance, how lucky we were living in Australia. Mm -hmm. And the same would be in Canada, how lucky we are to be able to live in Canada because our lifestyle is relatively easy. Yeah. But you need to go and see other places where it's not so easy and so everything is, is looked at in a different way. And that used to really annoy me. And it was amazing when I talked to some of them later who had eventually gone and travelled and they go, I totally understand where you were coming from. Our perception was so small because mm -hmm. we'd only lived this part and seen this part we hadn't seen alternatives yeah and to be able to from those alternatives say okay i need to change my thinking before i open my mouth and say mm -hmm. something that's wrong is that also a similar thing or, or not not the helping part but it gives i i would imagine with this you know uh, pro-social behavior Some of it is if you don't know what's going on, how can you make those choices? Yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying. I think that's definitely like, that's probably a part, but... Because they may have a different, make a different decision after seeing seeing the world as opposed to now if they hadn't been anywhere. Yeah, that can absolutely be, but I still think because we know that these you know individual characteristics these tendencies to be mm -hmm. altruistic are relatively stable yes that you, you we are saying so that, you yes. know even when you you know when you're 25 or something and then you go see the world not that much is going to change obviously some you will get new input maybe you have mm -hmm. new experiences that might make you a little more pro social but the way you basically react to suffering That is usually already, um, already in a sense, there. And yeah. Um, yeah. It's quite sad that we can't make those changes. But maybe we do it in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think currently it's more little ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I would also suspect, you know, opening, like going to um, experience new things and, you know, meet new people, see the world, also see, um, you know, that maybe um, other people, you know, are just born and raised in a third world country and then you might ask yourself okay do they deserve that and then you realize they don't I was just lucky because I right. was born and raised in a different country so I do believe you know little by little obviously as I said like you know reading novels it won't mm. make you super altruist overnight no. but, but these little changes little might help yes yeah, so it's not it doesn't always become an, a visible action from it yeah with those little changes it it's there in the person but doesn't necessarily correlate to a different change in action mm -hmm, exactly right. yeah This is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So 
I, I guess without the fact that you said earlier that you've already defended, which is great, but clearly there's a lot more work to be done in this particular area. So what's next for you? I'm currently looking into postdoc positions. Right. I'd like to do my postdoc. Yeah. I'm currently applying. Next week I'm going to visit a lab in Princeton just to oh, see fantastic. yeah, Some how uh, what kind doing. of research they are doing, which is similar to um, another stream of my research where I actually look at uh, thought processes. Right. So we are the first um, who look at whether um, altruistic individuals, so people who help often, um, have a different um, thinking patterns than people who don't help. Okay. And so, I mean, if you get to go to Princeton, that's another country. <laughs> <laughs> You're hopping around the world, aren't you? Yeah. I guess you're following the research. What's what's happening next? Well, I hope you get that opportunity, whether it's in Princeton or, or another university, to do... The, to continue the work that you've been doing because like I said clearly there's a lot more that can be done and there's still so much to learn mm -hmm. um, so best of luck with all of that and I really do appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much that's great to have you here so that's it everyone a another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes Google Podcasts, Spotify or CFRC podcast just type in grad chat and one of the things i just want to remind everyone from november the 1st to december the 31st we cfrc is doing their fundraising drive and of course you know we, we can't keep going unless we've got funds coming in because we are based on donations so if you want to do so if you want to continue to have cfrc going to air you may want to consider doing a, a small donation and we would really appreciate that Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.